0: ...for Sunday mornings. Okay, that's all I got. I'm done with announcements. Yes, I've broken you from your, your little tradition that you have. Yes. All of the... All of the incoming freshmen, it's like you're kind of scared a little bit to, to, to step out. Like, do they do that here? Do they say that here? The answer is, no, we do not. We do not do that here, Okay. We will throw you right out of here in a second. All right. Um, this morning, I need... Uh, what we normally do for high school is we have discussion at tables mixed in with teaching. And Because uh, I don't really shut up very easily. I kind of talk too long. I know I, I know, I do that. I know I can be long-winded. But I need to have some discussion leaders uh, rise up from each table. If you are a student and you really want to help lead a discussion this morning, then please come on up here and get one of these discussion sheets. If you're an intern or volunteer, you can go up here as well and get one of these... Just go ahead and take one of these sheets. These will be your questions for this morning. I'm sorry. And these are not terribly difficult, but I will sort of walk you through these as the time is appropriate. Here you go. And are we set with discussion leaders at the freshman guys table and freshman girls table? We're good to go? Okay, good. Awesome. Okay, I know this is a weird time of year for a lot of you because this is a time of transition. The seniors are graduating and the new freshmen are coming in. And with change, there comes a lot of relational angst and anxiety. Just there's a lot of relational thoughts you're having about, am I going to fit in in the new place that I'm going to be? Am I going to fit in in high school? Am I going to fit in at Texas A&M, UT, Baylor, wherever it is that seniors may be heading off to? And so there's a lot of just real angst that we can have relationally, right? And I think one of the worst fears that most of us have is the fear of being alone. In fact, if I were to take a survey in the room, and if I asked you the question, how many of you would want to be the richest person in the world? but be alone. Or, here is your hand too quickly, or, be somewhat poor, you know, kind of like a youth pastor, and be, and be rich in your friendships. You'd probably take the friendship, you'd probably take the relational deal. Or, if you were one of those people that said, no, I'll take the money, man. I don't even like people. I'll take the money. If that was you, I guarantee you, two years from now, you'll be crawling back going, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong. Right? Because, because most of us, the, the idea of being alone relationally is one of the worst fears we could imagine. Because we were created for relationships. We need relationships. We're created that way. But here's the thing. Is relationships are difficult. Relationships are extremely hard. In fact, one of my favorite bands uh, is U2. And they have a, a song called "With or Without You," and the words go something like, "I can't live with or without you." I'm talking about a girl, but the same thing is true. I think in all relationships that there's this element, this tension that we feel. We feel like I can't live with these people, but also can't live without them. I need them, but also feel like at times like I really want nothing to do with them, right? Because relationships are extremely difficult. And so the big idea for the passage we're going to look at today is this. How you view yourself will change how you relate to other people. How you view yourself will change all of your relationships. And so open your Bibles if you have them to Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 26. We're going to do three verses today. And this is probably my most, uh, probably my favorite passage in all of Galatians. It's a short, but I think very powerful passage passage and will change the way you view yourself and change the way that you view your relationships as well. Galatians chapter 5 verse 26 it says let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. Here's your first discussion question at your tables. First of all how would you define conceit? And secondly, how does conceit affect Relationships. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, give me some feedback. How would you guys define conceit? How do you define conceit? Okay, pride? That's a good word, to It's like conceit. What else? Selfishness? Yes. Okay? So, like, really focusing on yourself to the exclusion of everybody else. What else? Yes. What's that? Get full of yourself. That's a really good way of saying it. What else? (laughs) That's true. Actually, it's not true. If you give me a completely off definition, I would call you out right here in front of everybody. So... So what's your definition? How would you define it? Maybe you guys are just so conceited that you just, you're so confident about yourselves. Yeah. How about about this question? How does conceit affect relationships? So it really kind of kills a friendship. Good. Matt? Okay. That's really good. Make people not want to be around you. Anybody ever say, um, I just really love arrogant people? They're my favorite people to be around. I really haven't met many people that are like that. Right? But here's the deal. Is that conceit? Here's a definition of conceit. This is a longer definition, but this will make sense. Conceit is basically a deep... Insecurity, which makes someone feel like they always have to prove themselves. Do you ever feel like when you walk into a room, do you feel like you've got to, you know, be on your game? You've got to find a way to prove yourself. Whatever venue you're in, whether it's with some friends, that you feel like this extreme pressure to be really, really funny, or extreme pressure to be, you know, really just on with your wit. I mean, whatever it is, there's always this pressure sometimes in this game called life to impress people, right? You've got to prove yourself. And so conceit is this this deep insecurity which makes someone feel like they've got to play this game all the time. and trying to prove yourself. Here's how conceit affects relationships. This verse is really clear. It says, provoking and envying each other. Okay? This is a verse you can easily just gloss over and not really pay much attention to. When you really unpack this, you realize how profound some of the things Paul is saying in this verse. Conceit affects relationship in, in two major ways. The first one is provoking. This is, this is like to like feel superior to someone else. Uh, this will be the person who, who walks into a room and thinks they own the place. They walk into a room and they're always kind of intimidating people with uh, their sarcasm, their, their humor. Um, and maybe on the playing field, they're a person who thinks they're superior to everyone else. They're trying to intimidate through physical presence. Uh, Maybe this is a person who uh, just walks down the hallway and gives people a glare. Whatever it might be, there are people that that think they're superior, think they're better than other people, and they try to provoke people. These are the people that try to start fights with you, right? There's a second way that can can take root in someone's life, and it's the the sin of envy. This is the opposite, feeling inferior, Feeling inferior to people. So you're the kind of person that walks in and you feel really timid and shy. You feel like everyone else is better than you. You feel intimidated by people. You always feel like you're, you're, you're second class, like you're less than than other people. And here's the weird thing. On the surface, it looks like that the person who's feels inferior is the better of the two. I'm going to show you today how this thing called conceit can grow Into these two things called provoking and envy, and both are sin. Both are sin. And so if relationships go bad, if relationships go bad, it almost always goes back to one of these two issues provoking or envying. If relationships go south, it's usually because at one point you thought you were better than someone else, so you left the relationship, or at one point you thought you were inferior to someone else. And you weren't worthy. And so you left the friendship because of that. You don't like how they make you feel. And so on the surface, these two things look very different from each other. But they both come from the same root. And that root is called conceit. Here's why. Because both of these kinds of people are focused on themselves. Both people are focused on themselves. And how everyone else around them makes them look and feel. You see, both people are trying to to base their identity... On a competition with other people. Both of these people are trying to base their self-image on this game. And the person who's real confident, they just think that they're winning at the game. And the person who's not confident, they just think they're losing at the game. But they're both playing in the game. I want to show you guys today how the gospel, when it really sinks into your heart and soul, how it can change this whole thing for you we can make you not want to play that game anymore. Because when Jesus comes into your life, He gives you a completely new self-image. And when the gospel really sinks in, it leads not to arrogance, not to envy, but it leads to something else that I'm going to call bold humility. The gospel leads you to bold humility when Christ really changes you. Someone said, this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I know it sounds like a a verbal pretzel I just tied you up into, but let me explain what this means. Humility is not just, you know, thinking less of yourself, beating yourself up, just thinking, oh, I'm just such a horrible person, I'm so awful. I'm just horrible. That's not humility. Because you're still thinking about yourself. Real humility is when you come out of that game of inferiority and superiority, and you begin to think of yourself less often. That is real humility. That is humility. So how does the gospel lead us to this bold humility? How does the gospel transform us and lead us into this bold humility? I want you to think of it like this. I'm sure that, that, that this might be hard for you to relate to but just try to, to stretch your mind to, to grasp what I'm saying here. Um, let's just say that you have a friend, all right? And that friend has been saying negative things about you behind your back. Ever happen to anyone? Probably not, I'm guessing. But that friend's been saying negative things about you behind your back. So the question is, what do you do? What do you do with that? There are three reactions. You say, kill him. Is that what I ever hear? here? Uh, stay away from this table over here it's got some violent tendencies uh, there are three reactions to really any relationship problem that you come across and here they are the first one is to provoke the first one is to provoke that would mean to you know someone talks bad about you so you want to go fight someone talks bad about you so you want to go start rumors about them someone speaks bad of you so you want to get revenge that's that's provoking Most of us have a personality that leans towards either that or the second one I'm going to talk about, and that is avoid. Maybe you're a person that whenever you encounter a relationship problem, you just want to avoid. You just want to withdraw, avoid the person. When they walk down the hallway, that way you walk against the locker as close as you can get. Just ignore them. Maybe you're the kind of person who you're just afraid to confront. You're scared. You want to avoid people. You want to ignore the problem and hope it will go away. Maybe you're an avoider. But there's a third way that I want to introduce to you, and it's, I think, the gospel way. And I think this is the way that we should handle any relationship problem we come across, and it's this. When someone wrongs you, when someone sins against you, I think the Christ-centered way to approach that, the gospel-centered way to approach that, is to confront that person with a humble boldness. Here's what that might look like in this situation. So someone speaking badly of you, someone starting rumors about you that have been very hurtful to you, maybe the, the right response is to go to that person and say, look, we need to talk. Um, I've been hearing things that you've been saying about me and, and I just want to let you know that if I've done something to upset you, if I've done something to wrong you, then, then please tell me because I want to make it right. I want to make whatever it is I've done to cause you to have this feeling towards me I want to make it right and see when you do that you have combined two things that I think are such a rare combination boldness and humility that the person is totally taken off guard and they're just going "What? What? what is this? what in the world are you, are you talking about? because you've had the boldness to confront sin but you've also had the humility to admit that maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm wrong I think when when the gospel transforms you, it leads you to have this bold humility in your friendships. This bold humility in your relationships. The next passage we're going to look at in this passage deals with a couple of questions that I want you to discuss at your tables. Here are the questions. What do we normally do when a friend falls into sin? Secondly, what keeps us from wanting to confront sin in someone else's life? Go ahead and discuss for a few minutes. Here's what we normally do, I think, whenever someone that we know, someone that we love, a friend of ours, falls into some kind of sin. What we normally do is compare ourselves to them. We normally judge them, condemn them. We play this comparison game with, with our friends and their friends. So here's the question, what should we do when a friend falls into sin? So now Paul addressing a different topic, not just when someone... You know, maybe sins against you. But whenever someone that you know, when they fall into some kind of a sin that everyone else knows about, and you know what those things would be, what do you do when a friend, a person that you care about, falls into sin? This passage deals with that. Look at verse one of chapter six. Paul says, "Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also." May be tempted. He first says, if someone is caught in a sin. Now, this does not mean that you open the door and you're like, oh, they're sinning, like you catch them in the act. This is not what that's talking about here. What Paul is saying is that as if the person is caught in a trap, like they've been caught by sin, like they're walking through life, and let's just say that an analogy would be they're walking through a jungle. And in that jungle, there's a trap that someone has set for them. And they fall into this trap. And they're they're now in a pit and they can't get out. That is the analogy that Paul is using here when he says they're caught in a sin. And I think for many of you, that's exactly how sin begins. You're walking through life fairly innocently, and all of a sudden something... You know, someone, uh, exposes you to pornography, someone exposes you to drug use, someone exposes you to a certain group of friends that are doing things that you know you should not be doing. And that's the way sin tends to work. You're walking through life and you fall into a trap. And now you feel like you're caught and you can't get out. And so you're, you're caught in sin. Here's what reality is. If someone is in a trap, if they're in a pit, They can't get out on their own They can't get out by themselves They need someone else to come along And help pull them out And that's exactly the point Paul is trying to make here Because things are not going to change for that person Unless someone steps up to help them And I know that in a room this size that that many of you probably feel this way when it comes to sinful habits, sinful attitudes, things that you're going through in your own life, is that you feel trapped. In many ways, you you feel like you you can't get out of whatever you're in right now because you know you just don't have the power to do it by yourself. And I want to let you guys know that, that if that is you this morning, then that's why we're here. That's why we're here to help you. That's why we have leaders at your table. That's why we have leaders in your community groups. That's why we have leaders here in this ministry. We feel like that we want to be here for you in the midst of some of these things. We want to be the person that helps pull you out of that pit. And Paul uses a word here. He uses the word restore. He says that in verse uh, 1 he says, You who are spiritual should restore him gently. What does it mean to restore? Here's the... The picture Paul wants to paint for us, if uh, any of you guys ever had a, a broken bone, raise your hand quickly. I know we had a guy that had two at one time recently. Yes, over here. And you're, you're, all, you're free now. You're set free, man. Look at that. Uh, he's got both cast off. Um, but he had cast on both arms. And if you, if you know what breaking a bone is like, it's extremely painful. But What's even more painful sometimes is when the doctor resets it, right? That can be more painful than the break itself. And that's the picture that Paul is trying to paint here. That to restore someone spiritually is like taking a bone that is broken and trying to reset it. And and sometimes that can be extremely painful. But that kind of pain is a healing pain. If something's really going to be restored and healed the proper way, it's got to be reset. And the same thing is true of us spiritually. That someone from the outside might need to come alongside you as you deal with your sin. And they might need to confront you with bold humility. And in a sense, that might be more painful for you, the most painful experience that you've ever had. But in that time that they spend with you, they're going to help reset. They're going to help restore you. And take you to a place of real healing. Take you to a place where, where God can do some amazing work in your life. That's what it means to restore. The next question I want you to answer at your tables is this. Uh, this person that Paul's talking about, the restorer, the person that comes alongside to help the person who's dealing with sin. Why do you think Paul warns this person, the restorer, about temptation? And in what ways might this person be tempted? Discuss. Okay, there are two ways that I want to highlight for you ways that this person can be tempted. This person who's the restorer, how they can be tempted themselves. The first one is tempted to repeat the sin of the person that they're trying to help, right? Like you may have been in a situation, like maybe you're in a small group with somebody else, and there's a person who says, hey, I'm really struggling with this sinful issue. And then everyone in the group kind of goes, oh, really? and then they start wondering, I wonder what that must be like. I wonder... And their mind starts to race. They start to, to wonder, what must it be like to have done that or to experiment with that or, or whatever it might be. And so the person would be tempted to repeat the sin of the person that you're trying to help restore. I think Satan can, can get in there. Satan can... There's an open door whenever you start hearing about someone else's sin. Secondly... I think there's a real temptation for us to be proud. There's a real temptation to think, when you hear someone else's sin, to be like, What? You did what? I would never... I can't believe you did that. I I I can't even imagine even thinking about that. Like, you were so awful. You are so horrible. You know? And there's a temptation that you feel to to be prideful, thinking that there's no way I could ever fall in the same way. And as I said before, it's at that moment when you are prideful that I think Satan can come in and you are now deceived. The the veil has been pulled over your eyes to think that you are not that sinful. And when in reality, you are just as sinful. And now it's doubly bad because you don't even see it. You're blind to it. Tempted to be proud. Ever wonder if you're someone who is a prideful legalist? Ever wonder if you're someone who is who deals with this issue called pride, someone said this, legalists are always harder on other people than on themselves. You see, whenever you and I gossip about somebody else who has sinned, we are really saying that, that we are better, we are more spiritual, and Paul here is rebuking us. He is saying, okay, prove your spirituality by seeking to restore someone, not seeking to gossip about somebody, because when you gossip about someone else's sin, you are simply proving that you are a worse sinner than the person you're gossiping about. Because when you do that, you are essentially saying, I am more spiritual, I am better than them, I would never do such a thing. In that moment, if you want to be really spiritual, then seek the person out in bold humility and seek to restore them. Because that's real spirituality. That's real spirituality. So what do you do when someone you care about falls into sin? Instead of gossiping, condemning, instead of judging, the question is, do you love them? Do you love them enough to confront sin with bold humility? Do you love them enough? Look at verse 2. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Here's what he's saying. When a friend falls into sin, you have a chance to be Christ to them. When a friend falls into sin you have a chance in that moment to show the love of Christ to them because what happens when people fall into sin? How do they feel towards God when they fall into sin? They feel ashamed. They feel unworthy. They feel dirty. They feel like there's no way God can love me after what I've done. And so in that moment you have a chance to fulfill the law of Christ which is love, grace, and mercy. And so God is like sending you to that person to be a living representative of who He is. Be a person of grace, love, and mercy. Because in that moment, that person needs to see a real, tangible side of God. And you might be that person. You might be that person. Because when you do that, this person gets to taste the love of Christ in a very real, tangible way. And you being going into that person's life might be the very thing that turns them back towards God, where they understand that it's not because of my works that I'm worthy before God. Of course, we're all sinners. And because I'm a sinner, that's why I need God. That's why I need to come to Him. You might be the very person that helps them taste the love of Christ, helps them taste grace and mercy and the love of God. You see, the burden that Paul's talking about here is sin. It's not actually, when he says carry each other's burdens, he's not saying, okay, my grandmother passed away, so I need someone's shoulder to cry on. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about carry someone else's burden, this burden called sin. That The, the body of Christ is meant to help each other along, to, to help carry this load. This is, You guys see that the burden of sin is way too heavy to carry along. This is why when you are struggling, if you've ever been a part of a small group before, when you're really going through a major sin struggle, one of the best things you can do is to tell someone, to confess it to someone else. Because the simple act of confession can just lighten the load. If you've ever had just a burden on your heart and you've gone to someone and talked about it, the, the moment you say those words, it's as if just a weight has been lifted up off of you. And you can feel it. You can feel it. And if you're going to help carry someone else's burden, you can't do it from a distance. If I had some weights on my shoulders here this morning, and I was trying to walk with them myself, and they were too heavy to carry, if I asked for for someone's help, you would not be able to do that from a distance. You'd have to come alongside me and get right up next to me, almost kind of walk right under me and, and help me hold this burden. Help me hold these weights. You can't carry someone's burden from a distance. This is exactly why we have things called community group on Wednesday night. Why we have small groups during the week that some of you guys lead. This is why we have Sunday morning. This is why we want to be a part of your lives. We feel like we want to help you carry the burdens that you're going through, sinful and otherwise. And if you're you're a new freshman here this morning, I want to make sure you guys get this today that we want this to be a place that is a family, a place where you don't have to pretend, a place where you can come here and say, hey, I'm really struggling spiritually. I have doubts about my faith. I struggle with all kinds of sinful issues. I I need help. I need help. I've always found it weird that the church is the one place we don't talk about stuff like that. That just seems weird to me. (laughs) I don't get that. But we want this to be a place where that happens, a place where you can be real and not have to pretend. Not have to be a part of this game of inferiority and superiority and where everyone's trying to jockey for position and figure out where they stand with people. Guys, that that needs to not happen here. Because it doesn't happen with God and it shouldn't happen here. So the way that you view yourself will change how you relate to other people. The gospel leads not to comparison, not to arrogance, not to envy, but to a bold humility. And my prayer this morning is that you would allow that to be unleashed in your relationship with people here, with your parents, with God. I'm going to pray for you guys before you head out. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for for being a God who transforms us from within, being, being a God who allows us to be changed so we no longer have to play this game. Of envy, this game of of provoking, this game of uh, superiority and inf- inferiority. God, we thank you so much for being a God who changes us and allows us to see ourselves as who we are. We are sinners, uh, disconnected from you before Christ. But once we had come to know Christ, we are fully accepted as children of God. We pray that that truth would sink in today, God. That we would we would see it for what it is, and it would it would lead us to to living out of bold humility in all of our relationship. We pray this your name. Amen. If you are a new freshman with us, please stay after for lunch today. We're going to have some food for you. And if you're on the welcome team, please stick around as well. Um, everyone else, we will see you guys later on in the week. We love you guys. Have a great week.